electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Well, that's a scorecard on Wall Street. The Dow just couldn't hold on to that bump from Salesforce. Winner stay late. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm John Fort with Morgan Brennan, and we are closing out August with a bang as a number of high-profile companies gear up to report earnings this hour, including Broadcom, Lululemon, Dell, VMware, Nutanix, and more. We'll bring you all of those results and expert analysis, plus an exclusive interview with the CEO of Nutanix before he talks to analysts. But as we await those earnings, let's get to our market panel. Joining us now is Invesco Global Market Strategist Brian Levitt and CNBC Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli, who is just on TV all day, (laughs) grinding the gears here. Um, Brian, uh, mixed end to the month uh, of August here today with the S&P finishing down slightly lower, the Dow lower, but the Nasdaq eking out some gains. We're still lower on the month. The rally we've seen in recent days, can it continue from here? Yeah, I believe it can. I mean, this is a market that early in the month was very concerned about higher interest rates, growth being too strong and perhaps inflation not coming down fast enough. And so we've seen that unwind over the last few weeks, which has been um, healthier. You've seen the economy continue to show signs of moderation and you have signs that inflation is is. moving towards the Fed's comfort zone. And so as that's happened, interest rates have come down, which has provided support to to uh, equity valuations. And so I think it persists. Now, you might see a little bit of a shift in leadership. It's been the tech-heavy, growthy names here. But as the market starts to get more enthused about a soft landing, you would expect to see some broadening out of that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I mean, a rate reprieve, that, that has been sort of the theme of these recent days of trading. And certainly that's given renewed life to some of those tech names, communication services, consumer discretionary uh, as well, which have been some of the best performers over the past week. Uh, To that point, do you you need to or can you see a a re-broadening out of some of these other sectors that did end the month in the red? Yeah, you certainly could. Uh, I do think that that was part of the story going into the July peak in the market was that it actually had been much broader, especially this month. Things like energy, also healthcare, perking up as well. So you're seeing some signs uh, that it's not just a very narrow slice of the, of the market performing. Now, the reset in yields lower obviously has taken a lot of the pressure off of equities. Uh, and you also had oil prices run up to the kind of the top end of the range and come back. So it sort of tested the market on all those fronts. And then uh, sort of the market buckled a little bit. We had a shakeout. There's a way to tell the story that that's all it was. We had sentiment got a little too excited. Now it's been moderated a little bit for the moment. And maybe that's all we needed. So that's the completely best case benign scenario going ahead from here. But it is subject to the data still looking like a relatively soft landing and things like yields, commodity prices, the dollar not really racing and breaking out. Brian, there there are a number of companies reporting this afternoon that you really want to see growing if you believe in small and mid-cap innovators. MongoDB, for example, is the top percentage holding in the WCLD, which I think closed up better than a percent and a half today. 
when the major averages weren't doing that hot. I, if you want to believe that this AI story continues to have momentum and legs beyond uh, NVIDIA as well, uh, you know, MongoDB had a story to tell there uh, on their sort of database uh, insurgency with Atlas versus Oracle. What are you particularly watching on that storyline? Well, what I'm watching in terms of small and mid-cap businesses is, you know, how does the market feel about the future state of the economy? And what we've been seeing was, you know, if you looked at March, April, May, it was a market that was very concentrated and was concerned that some of the banks were challenged and that higher rates were, were forthcoming and going to slow this economy down meaningfully. It's a different feel now. It's a market where we've seen spreads come in. Um, you've seen smaller cap names do well uh, July and August. Um, and, and so it's a market that's telling us that growth's actually going to be quite good between now and the end of the year. And, and so we've opened up this environment again, as we saw in middle of October last year. Um, we've opened up an environment for risk assets to do well. It's a market that we believe will become increasingly enthused as the year progresses about the resiliency of the U.S. economy. And that type of resiliency, albeit, you know, uh, weaker than it once was, but that type of resiliency does favor more small and mid-cap businesses more than it did, certainly, in, 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 the, in the early spring. Mike, and with the 10-year uh, yield under 4.1%, not saying that there's a direct relationship here, but it does perhaps give a little breathing room for people to believe in those small and mid-caps. For sure. Um, small and mid-caps, I mean, I would say housing-related. So uh, one thing that's been encouraging over the course of August, as things got very choppy, was that cyclical sectors did not really buckle relative to defensive ones. It really wasn't a rush for safety. Uh, that indicated things like industrials hanging in there. That often correlates with smaller stocks maybe being able to hold up as well. Uh, so all that more or less came together, and, and consensus earnings estimates continue to nudge higher through this earnings reporting season. So you have that support underneath, even if things get a little bit dicey on the valuation side or if rates uh, cause a little bit more uh, of a, uh, you know, of a gut check. All right. Well, we're starting to get some of these earning results. Lululemon. Those earnings are out. Courtney Reagan has the numbers. Hey, Court. Hi, Morgan. Yes, so Lululemon is reporting a stronger than expected bottom line here coming in at $2.68 per share. The street was looking for $2.54. Revenue is also stronger than expected at $2.21 billion. The street was looking for $2.17 billion. Same store sales up 11%. That is actually slightly lower than what the street had expected at up about 12.1%. Gross margin coming in 58.8%. Also slightly stronger than expected. Uh, the third quarter revenue guidance is a range that's above the street's consensus, as is the third quarter earnings. Interesting that, the, that inventories for Lululemon actually higher by 14 percent, but kind of makes sense with the sales rate that they're going, albeit much different from what we had seen from other retailers. Revenues in North America up 11 percent, up 52 percent internationally. Store comparable sales grew 7 percent. Direct-to-consumer grew 15 percent and a very strong operating margin up 20 basis points to 21.7 percent. Shares here are down a little after hours, but this has been a very strong performer. So this could be a little bit of a sell on the news and taking some profit opportunity. Back over to you. All right. Courtney Reagan, thank you. Uh, Mike, want to get your reaction to this because, because it does seem like overall it's a pretty strong report here. And gross margins we know have been particularly in focus when it comes to the retailers. They, they are better than expected there. The outlook better than expected. Yeah. But 
We also know that there was a lot baked into this stock coming into this number and this expectation that they really did have to blow it out of the park for it to move higher. Yeah, it would seem, although I wouldn't be surprised if the stock actually finds its way maybe through the call, just because uh, the, the revenue guide seems like it's, it's pretty healthy, as well as the full year earnings uh, outlook. So I don't know if there's anything that in, in what we see right here that would be of, uh, of great concern unless, you know, there were whispers of something a little bit better. As I mentioned, the stock has been sort of trapped uh, under this $400 level. So uh, see if this changes that picture. All right, uh, Dell earnings are out. Our Steve Kovac has those numbers. Steve? Yeah, there sure are. And it's a beat on the top and bottom lines here, John, for Dell. Uh, EPS coming in at $1.74 per share. Street was looking for $1.14 per share. That's excluding certain items and adjusted. And revenue is also a pretty solid beat here, $22.93 billion. Street was looking for $20.85 billion. No guidance, though, but we're seeing shares here up better than 5.5%, John. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, Steve Kovac, thank you. Uh, Brian, what, what do you take away from those results? I mean, this is a company that, that once had VMware. Uh, Broadcom's about to get it. <laughs> I mean, uh, very much a part of the nuts and bolts of the IT ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you take away that the the you know, the sector is still healthy and you're still going to see the opportunity to grow in 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 these types of environments and, you know, a more moderation in economic activity. I was also very enthused by what we heard from Lululemon. I mean, Lululemon showed that the consumer is still relatively resilient. But, you know, this inventory concern that people had a year ago worries about supply chain challenges, worries about whether businesses were going to be able to stock the shelves. You start to increasingly see that that has become passe. So, you know, all in all, whether it's um, you know businesses spending on on tech upgrades, whether it's the consumer that's been generally resilient, the inventory concerns fading, all of that creates a better backdrop for risk assets than I think a lot of people expected at this point in the cycle. Very consistent with moderation and growth, which is what you would ex- which is what you would want here, um, and an easing of inflationary pressures, which quite frankly allows the Fed to back off the tightening stance, which we know typically creates um, a a nice environment for risk assets over the next couple of years. Yeah, Mike, I mean, Lululemon has just turned positive. It's now up 1%. Dell is just shooting higher. It's 9, 10% right now uh, in after-hours trade. Uh, It kind of speaks to Dell, I mean, uh, the strong... The strong results and the strong and the strong stock reactions we've gotten from uh, tech companies all week now. It has been a a little bit of an emerging trend for sure. I mean, Dell, of course, is is one of those, you know, older companies trades very cheap, wasn't really priced as, uh, you know, a big grower. And I noticed, you know, in their earnings press release, all they're doing is lots of bullet points highlighting partnerships with NVIDIA and, you know, the the fact that they are uh, a significant participant in this new AI build out. So uh, you can see why uh, people reach for it. Um, Mike, I got to mention Nutanix earnings are out smaller player uh, but in the very much in the hybrid and cloud ecosystem dealing in data that stock is moving higher by about nine percent after hours because it's a beat across the board revenues came in at 494 
million versus 475 million expected. Uh, Non-GAAP earnings per share at 24 cents versus 16 cents expected. And the guide also stronger than expected. The street was looking in their fiscal Q1 for 484.2 million dollars. They report 500 million to expect at the midpoint range of uh, 495 to 505. Also, the fiscal year, full fiscal year revenue guide, the midpoint, uh, 2.1 billion dollars. That's above expectations. A range 2.085 to 2.115, and uh, the EPS guide uh, also pretty strong. They also announced a share repurchase authorization up to 350 million dollars worth of stock. Um, again, that headed higher now, better than 10 percent in the after hours, and we're going to have the CEO before the call in just a few minutes here on Overtime. Rajiv Ramaswamy, the CEO of Nutanix. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I'm going to go back to you here because, again, it's another big move and another tech name. Uh, and, again, it speaks to everything we've been talking about here uh, for the last 12 minutes, in- including uh, software, cloud, AI, and-, and this secular growth story and who potentially is benefiting from all of it. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, to kind of re-stimulate those muscles. Uh, people love to grab for these stories. We have the VIX down to 14. The NASDAQ is again started to lead this bounce. So I don't want to extrapolate necessarily this into the macro or into whether in fact we're in another one of these uh, boom phases for tech. But clearly we were, uh, we were ready for something like this. And the shakeout in August probably helped set the, set the stage for it. Okay. We're going to hit three more movers right now. MongoDB, VMware, PagerDuty, all of those earnings are out. Steve Kovac has all of the numbers. I'm Steve. back. Let's do a triple whammy here. Let's start with MongoDB. Just a huge beat here. EPS crushing expectations, almost double, more than double expectations. 93 cents a share versus the 46 cents adjusted the street was looking for. Revenue, also a solid beat there. $424 million versus the $393.4 million street was looking for. Guidance, also incredibly strong as we see shares go up uh, about 9% here, Morgan. Uh, 47 to 50 cents for the current quarter on EPS. Street was looking for just 27 cents there. And revenues also beating expectations for the uh, third quarter outlook. 400 to 404 million dollars. Street was looking for 389 million. Let's move over to VMware. There's a beat here on the bottom line. EPS was a dollar 83 cents versus the dollar 71 adjusted street was looking for. Revenue 3.41 billion, just a small beat, uh, small miss here rather. Uh, 3.46 billion was what the street was looking for there. And then finally, PagerDuty uh, beat here on EPS, 20 cents versus 10 cents adjusted. That was expected. And revenue, a slight beat, $108 million versus the $104.2 million. And Q3 outlook a little bit better than expected here. PagerDuty, though, we're seeing shares fall uh, almost 7%, Morgan. All right. Interesting. Um, I also want to note VMware, a big competitor of Nutanix. So it's going to be interesting to measure those against each other. HashiCorp earnings out also. The company beating on both lines, reporting a loss of 10 cents per share. X items versus estimates of a 15 cent loss. Revenue coming in at $143 million, which was $5 million above expectations. HashiCorp also giving a strong full year Revenue outlook, um, you know, above the uh, 567.6 million expected, got into a range of 571 to 575. And we will be speaking exclusively with HashiCorp CEO Dave McJanet 
We'll bring you uh, those comments tomorrow here on Overtime. This is a big day for what we call DevOps software tools for uh, developers to work in the cloud. They need those for AI. And a lot of these names, again, I'll mention MongoDB, uh, David Acharya shop over there, strong results, uh, up better than 8.5% after hours, at least initially. That's important for this AI story, to show that there's more than just Nutanix here. Do, do we still have Mike Santoli uh, with us hanging around to talk I'm about here. this? Yeah, Mike, uh, uh, your, your take. I mean, DevOps has been trying to introduce people to this concept for a while now, and there's been some, you know, it's hard to know what kind of valuation to put on growth names like this uh, with, with the economy as it is, but, but these are some notable results. I think it's uh, hard to know what kind of valuation to put on those types of growth names regardless of what's going on in the economy <laughs> because it does seem as if, uh, you know, the, the races, you know, there's a lot of lead changes along the way. So I'll defer to you in terms of the guts of exactly what the competitive positions are. But I do think that a healthy thing is diversity of reactions to individual companies based on what they're reporting and, and what their outlooks are, as opposed to big macro moves, everybody watching the 10-year yield for every tick. All right, Broadcom earnings are out in the meantime. Christina Parsonevelis has those numbers. Christina. We are seeing some strength. Top and bottom line, a, uh, EPS adjusted 10.54, so $10.54. That's stronger than what the street was anticipating. Our revenues of $8.8 billion, pretty much uh, uh, beat Across the board, same thing for Q4 revenue guidance. That was, I would call that in line at $9.27 billion, uh, which is what the street was anticipating. And a lot of that has to do with hyperscaler customers and uh, AI clusters within their data centers. So right now, I'll continue to go through the report to figure out why the stock, though, is down over 2.5%. John? I'll take it. Christina oh. Parsonavalis, thanks. <laughs> Mike, I'm going to go back to you for reaction on this. I know you're talking about it in the last hour, but yeah. we saw that blowout report from NVIDIA last week. Stock couldn't hang on to the gains. There was a lot of expectation coming into this report as well, but also a lot of speculation on, on, on whether it would be enough in this current broader market environment right. uh, for the stock to actually move higher. Yes, and I, I do think it's important to point out that basically it's, it's essentially giving back less than it gained during the regular session today. Yeah. So, you know, you had a setup where, uh, where you've had people, you know, posture for something pretty good here. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, I don't think there's anything in the results that was a specific thing people were uh, reacting negatively to, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I do think it's been a, a pretty rapid revaluation of this company over the last, you know, eight to 10 months, call it. Uh, you see there now trades at a premium to the S&P. Uh, that's when uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the AI excitement started. It used to be at a chronic discount. Uh, and so maybe some digestion here, but uh, wouldn't be surprised if it firms up uh, even through the call. All right, Mike Santoli, Brian, thank you both. And we got a lot more after hours action coming your way. Up next, we're gonna break down results from $380 billion chip giant Broadcom, which is already up more than 60% this year. And later, we will speak with the CEO of buy now, pay later firm Klarna about whether he's seeing any signs of a shift in consumer spending. Overtime is back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. 
Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now. Welcome back to Overtime. Broadcom shares falling right now despite beating estimates on revenue and earnings for the third quarter. Joining us now, Susquehanna senior analyst Chris Rowland. Chris, uh, the semiconductor solutions segment came in at $6.94 billion versus expectations of slightly higher than that. Does that sort of account for this? Do we need to hear more about whether networking is growing for, for them as expected? Yeah, that was right on the nose, and we have yet to see the breakout of semiconductor segments. Uh, there was a comment uh, about hyperscale customers scaling out uh, and networking their AI clusters within data centers. So uh, I think the AI opportunity is progressing, progressing nicely here. But we struggled in our preview about the other parts of Broadcom's businesses, the core parts of their business that are in the same semiconductor down cycle that we're seeing for the rest. So I, I, I think that's what we're going to hear more about uh, over the next hour or so. So then what's more likely to move the stock, particularly in the near term? Is it going to be the core business and the commentary and the color around that, or is it going to be the promise of AI? I think it's the promise of AI, and and there are really two parts to this story. So first of all, there's the NVIDIA part, where everything comes out of the NVIDIA server uh, into the data center. And the second part is Google TPU, or custom silicon, that they're doing for hyperscalers and NVIDIA alternatives, and Broadcom really owns both of those markets. All right. Trying to help investors understand the difference between a company that has an AI play and a company that is an AI play. We're going to keep watching this one. Chris, thank you. You got it. Up next. That was very clever, the way you put that. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, the CEO of cloud computing company Nutanix, uh, which is up considerably in overtime, is going to join us to break down his quarter before he talks with analysts on the earnings call. And take a look at some of the names that hit 52-week highs on this final day of August. Alphabet, Adobe, Cisco, Western Digital, and Intuit, all trading at levels not seen in at least a year. Speaks to the rebound we've seen in tech. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Hybrid and multi-cloud software player Nutanix 
reporting Q4 numbers just moments ago. You can see the reaction in the stock there, up better than 12%. Joining us now, Rajiv Ramaswamy, Nutanix president and CEO. Rajiv, thanks for joining us before the call. Got to ask you, so Salesforce saw strength from MuleSoft, cloud migration, getting data positioned for, uh, for, for AI use when it reported last night. What accounts for your beats across the board here and strong guide? How much of it has to do with that data migration? Yeah, we've always been a company that manages app and data everywhere. Uh, what we're seeing now, of course, is companies are having this everywhere, right? Apps run in multiple clouds, they run in the data centers, and we're squarely positioned to help them manage those apps, uh, run their data everywhere. That's really what's helping us overall. Uh, and we're happy about our results, you know, 27% annual uh, uh, ACB billings growth, uh, generated 10 times as much free cash flow this year compared to our last year. And lots of other exciting news also from us, uh, new partnership with Cisco, uh, some new AI announcements with our GPT in a box. And we also announced a $350 million stock buyback. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. I, I want to ask you about the sales cycles. You said they were elongating a quarter ago. Mm -hmm. uh, are those stabilizing? And is the move uh, among the hyperscalers and others to, to paying for accelerators instead of traditional computing so much, is that helping you or hurting you? Yeah, I think the, uh, uh, first of all, I think, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the hyperscaler piece, I think, is actually we're at a good place. We partner with these hyperscalers, and we uh, also are able to, you know, we're on their marketplaces, and we're helping customers migrate to the cloud quickly and make use of the public cloud in a much easier way. Uh, and that's why we have partnerships going on with AWS and Azure. Could you repeat the first part of the question, please, John? Uh, I don't remember the first part of the question, but tell, <laughs> tell me ab about uh, what you're seeing on the sales cycles specifically, just kind of oh, yeah. comparing like those yeah. Yeah, uh, last quarter yeah. to this quarter and how the confidence is yeah. going from a macro perspective. So it's about the same as last quarter. Our macro piece is still a bit uncertain, but our sales cycle last quarter, we said it's modestly elongated. People are taking a little bit more time doing a good TCO analysis, which by the way, plays in our favor because we generate strong TCO. But uh, the inspection, deal inspection takes a bit longer. And it's remained about the same this quarter as last quarter. So no real change on that front. Rajiv, it's Morgan. You mentioned uh, a number of partnerships, including this this new one that you just unveiled earlier this week with Cisco. Mm -hmm. uh, talked about the fact that it's going to be an expanded mar market opportunity for both organizations. Uh, walk me through what that opportunity potentially looks like. Yes. First of all, what it is is Cisco is selling a combined portfolio, taking our Nutanix cloud software, combining it with their unified compute uh, as well as their networking and security and selling a combined offering in the marketplace. It's great for customers because they get to buy a fully engineered, pre-worked, complete solution for their hybrid cloud and data center. It's great for Cisco because they're now partnering with the market leader in hybrid multi-cloud and hyper-converged. And great for us because it gives us an expanded market reach with Cisco's go-to-market engine. Hmm. Rajiv, I got to ask about service provider, especially as I compare uh, you guys and VMware, two competitors both reporting after hours. That, that's a channel where there's some potential for you guys. How did you see that develop during the quarter and what do you expect from here? Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're actually seeing we are much earlier in the service provider game compared to some of our other competitors. So for me, that represents a huge opportunity. So we're growing our service provider route to market significantly. We've gotten some good deals even this last quarter with respect to our service providers coming on board. I see that as a big opportunity. I also see that again as something that the Cisco partnership could also help elevate. All right, uh, with that stock up about 12%, we'll let you get ready for the earnings call. Rajiv Ramaswamy, CEO of Nutanix. Thanks for joining us on Overtime. Thank you, John. When we return, 
the data that matters the most to the Fed. Mike Santola returns with a breakdown of today's inflation read and a preview of what to expect from tomorrow's jobs report with less than three weeks to go until the Fed's next rate decision. And as we head to break, take a look at the biggest winners in the S&P 500 in August. Arista Networks, Eli Lilly and Global Payments all locking in sizable gains over time. We'll be right back. It is time for a CNBC News update with Contessa Brewer. Contessa. John, President Biden will visit Florida Saturday to assess damage caused by Hurricane Adalia. In remarks made at the FEMA headquarters, the president called on Congress to pass more funding for the Federal Disaster Relief Fund to help with the hurricane response. The president said he spoke with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this morning after officially approving a major disaster declaration for that state. Mitch McConnell was medically cleared to return to work after appearing to freeze for a second time at a public event yesterday. The U.S. Capitol doctor said he consulted with McConnell and his neurology team, and the 81-year-old is medically cleared to continue his schedule. It's the first time McConnell's team has acknowledged the spells he's been having could be lingering effects from a fall and a concussion in March. Thousands of purple flags were planted in Boston today to honor the International Overdose Awareness Day. The 22,000 flags represent the lives lost in the state since 2011. The Centers for Disease Control estimate More than a million Americans have died from a drug overdose in the last two decades. What a harsh reminder. Guys, I'll send it back to you. It's heartbreaking. And you know what? It needs to be discussed, and it needs to be discussed a lot more. Absolutely. Contessa Brewer, thank you. Some key economic data hitting the tape today ahead of tomorrow's jobs report. Initial jobless claims came in below estimates, falling for the third straight week. And the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index posted its smallest monthly increase since December, rising at 0.2% in July. So let's bring in Mike Santoli for his take on all of this data. Mike. Yeah, Morgan, the trends remain relatively reassuring. Take a look at the uh, PCE core inflation number. This is a three-month average of the annual inflation rate, so it's kind of a moving quarterly snapshot of uh, the annual change in core PCE inflation. You see it's basically round trip since the early part of 2021. It's just under 3%. Right now, clearly, the Fed wants to see it get much lower than that. This, of course, is core. The actual inflation target is overall PCE inflation. And there were some elements of this report that maybe caught some people's eyes. Some elements of non-housing services ticked higher. But a lot of it was these imputed prices based on financial services and, 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 you know, financial services advice, which is just based on what the stock market does. So, so far, so good is the way I would call this. Now, weekly jobless claims, they are up off near record lows or like 60-year lows uh, in the last several months, but they curled lower just at the very end of that chart. It's very hard to see, but they did actually back down a little bit uh, in the latest week. Still up off those lows, as I mentioned. Of course, the whole chart broke during the pandemic when we had mass layoffs throughout the entire economy. The thing to watch is you have seen these curls higher in uh, the unemployment claims, leading by various amounts of time, recessions in the past, although I am focused on a couple of things, such as that in 2018, where you had an uptick and then a further retreat. In other words, it was a bit of a false signal. So I think it's a so far so good, but sometimes weekly claims don't give you a whole lot of forward notice uh, that, in fact, the economy, the job market is buckling. We'll see what those numbers say tomorrow. Everyone is going to be good, I think, with a cool but not cold employment gain number, payroll number. And then, of course, the wage uh, uh, tracker is going to be key in there, too.
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to parse here. What's interesting to me, particularly with the claims, is that those have been getting watched uh, with this yellow bankruptcy in mind, too, because that was going to result and has resulted uh, in in tens of thousands of layoffs and yet not necessarily showing up in the data. So not quite sure what to make of that. It is a little bit tough to read. Yes, we are braced for something like that. A lot of those uh, claims to hit. There also have been some issues, I think, in various states where people aren't quite sure if we should take the numbers at fair value. Now, this is a four-week average, so I do think that smooths out some of those effects. Uh, but I, you know, I would point out there have been these times. I think that might be Hurricane Katrina. So sometimes you get mm. these one-off events that are going to look like a change of trend that don't end up being. Interesting. Mike Santoli, thank you. All right. Up next, a deep dive into how Americans are really spending their money right now and the retailers poised to cash in on those consumer trends when overtime returns. Welcome back to Overtime. Retail stocks have been all over the map recently as many questions remain about the state of the consumer. So we asked Courtney Reagan, who else, to break down exactly how and where consumers are spending their money, really how that's been reflected in the results we've seen from retailers. Courtney? Yeah, John, this was actually a little harder to do than you might think. So even when we laid out retailers by subsector, it leaves still a lot of nuance when it comes to summarizing how the consumer and then retail is doing. So we tried to pick out retailers selling a variety of goods and prices spanning needs and wants. So those in red here, as you can see, they put up more or less disappointing quarters and forecasts. Yellow, kind of mixed, and then green were overall stronger performance. Now, the bottom left, this skews, of course, we've got lower uh, prices, but also typically more of that need category, a staple. So you've got grocery and consumable goods more over here. Upper left, that's some needs, but also usually higher price, like a dishwasher, right? If it breaks, you need to buy it, but that's higher price than milk or pet food, computers, for instance, at Best Buy. And then lower right, this is skewing more towards wants, like apparel and footwear, typically lower price points here, than the once in this upper right quadrant. So right now, consumers have money to spend, at least when they think it's valuable to them. So Gap Brands Apparel really wasn't desirable to consumers, even when it was on sale. Abercrombie, however, really was, even at full price. Higher and discretionary retailers, like Tapestry, for instance, or Estee Lauder, they're showing some emerging cracks among higher-income consumers, and they've got multiple brands that span multiple geographies. And again, category kind of mixed. Walmart is attracting shoppers that are sensitive to inflation in its grocery business, so you can see that over here on the lower left. They're also attracting some higher-income consumers, so they're picking up some more in their discretionary categories. Though that area is still down year over year, but not pressured as much as rival Target has seen for discretionary goods. Now, Home Depot and Best Buy here up in the upper left quadrant, those are examples of pretty good execution, even amid softer sales after really strong sales spikes that we saw during the pandemic. So in some cases, you've got deferred spending on big ticket items due to the macro environment or frankly, just waiting until replacements are really needed to make those purchases again. Uh, Court, so it, it seems to show what you illustrated there, that the luxury consumer at the higher end it maybe is doing a bit better. The, the retailers that uh, appeal to luxury and needs are doing a little bit better than wants. Yes, although I think that there's some obvious cracks in the higher income consumers, too. And I think they're also being fairly discerning. I think the international picture is a little muddy as well. I think for some brands, China has been 
fairly good, and for others, it hasn't. And I'm going to call it Abercrombie again there. I mean, Abercrombie sells items that are largely very discretionary, but they've had a really good business in China and in the United States, where others, like Estee Lauder, are really struggling, actually, in China right now. So I think it's really important, and, and you said this at the top, but I just want to revisit Please. it, the fact that, that this color-coded, <laughs> amazing wall and all the context you've shared with us is about the fundamentals and the read-through to the yes. consumer specifically. It's not about how the stocks have responded. Yes, and that is a really good point. I'm not sure that I made that clear because, for instance, Walmart really had a very good quarter if you looked across the board at their performance, but their stock price fell in immediate response. And look... I'm not a stock trader. Perhaps that was some taking on profits. Obviously, expectations were really high going into the print. But that's why we wanted to really take a careful look at this, because if you just did a stock screen, I think you'd actually see a very different colored picture mm. than what we put up here on the wall. I'm working with my kids right now. They're on that Investopedia virtual stock trading oh, yeah. platform to, to understand <laughs> expectations. <laughs> I, I'm, pushing, I'm trying to get them to understand how it. the market works, right? Uh, but just virtually. Uh, so, you know, expectations, just because a company reports strong results doesn't mean the stock's going to go up because maybe people expected them Absolutely. to do that. So especially in this environment, uh, investors have to take that into account. Absolutely. And then even on the flip side, I mean, Target's report, frankly, on a fundamental basis was was pretty bad. But their stock went up because expectations were so low and they were able to execute fairly well when it came to sort of different uh, cost-cutting measures, sort of corporate uh, scenarios that help squeeze out a little bit more profit, but the sales really disappointing, and so was the forecast. So, again, if you looked at the two stock performances of Walmart versus Target, an immediate reaction to their earnings, it was actually the opposite color of what we put up here on the wall. China has that net. Has that been a net positive for retailers this quarter? I mean, I just think about Lululemon, who reported just earlier this yep. hour. Yeah, I would say in general, no. It's probably been more bad than good. Huh. Vast generalization, though, because um, okay. I pointed out that actually it was pretty good for um, it was pretty good for Abercrombie. Obviously, Nike is struggling in China, and that is a big growth area. So. Again, it's so hard to paint everybody with a broad brush. I've got like a lot of different color-coded graphs here trying to help me figure it out and trying to pick some of them that best represented these areas. It was a harder exercise than I thought it was going to be. a great illustration. <laughs> Nobody else could have done it. We appreciate <laughs> it. That was great. Thanks, guys. Courtney Reagan, thank you. Well, up next, we will have much more on the state of the consumer and the lending market when we are joined by the CEO of Buy Now, Pay Later company, Klarna. Stay with us. Welcome back. At a time when the pharma industry and Medicare pricing are in focus just this week, one company is looking to make drug development more than global. For years, the International Space Station has been used for biomedical experiments, but such research had never been done in a fully commercial capacity. That changed on June 30th when Varda Space successfully completed a 27-hour experiment in orbit in its own mini-lab, growing crystals of HIV treatment ritonavir. This is something where we can build this company into you know sort of billions of dollars a year of uh, you know revenue. I like to you know sometimes give you know the example of you know there are certain compounds where even with our call it you know conservative two percent three percent you know take that you know we could fly on the order of like ten to twelve missions a year and you know do more revenue than basically all the uh, you know twelve hundred satellites you know in Starlink uh, combined. And so um, it's this you know sort of surprising world where drugs are really just the like highest margin you know physical product and highest revenue physical product by unit mass. Well, as access to space has become more commoditized and more affordable, it's enabled startups like Varda to target in-space manufacturing. 
Now, for drug makers, microgravity can unleash new formulations. Case in point, Merck's blockbuster treatment, Keytruda, which has spent some time on the ISS. Varda spacecraft, though, this was its first test, first spacecraft. It's still on orbit. It needs to attempt to land still. It's waiting for the green light as the first company seeking a re-entry license under new FAA regulations. But the full interview, which is about 30 minutes, with two of the co-founders of Varda Space, Will Brewey, a former SpaceX engineer and Founders Fund partner, Delian Asparohov, can be found on this week's Manifest Space, which is out wherever you get your podcasts. I see a great movie plot there where, like, the, this drug that's need to save humanity is, is in space and it's on its way back. But there's a problem. Um, very interesting. Manifest yeah. space. Well, we talk yeah. about supply chain, right? Global supply yeah. chain. Like, maybe bringing it off the globe right. as one step. Manifest space. Up next, all the after-hours earnings movers that need to be on your radar as the calls with analysts get set to kick off. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. August going out with some heat as a batch of companies reported results. Broadcom beating across the board, though Q4 revenue guidance was just in line with the street. It's lower. MongoDB with a huge beat. EPS came in more than twice what Wall Street expected, and third quarter guidance was very strong. It and Dell are a lot higher. Dell turning in a big beat on EPS, also topping revenue estimates. And PagerDuty doubling EPS estimates at 20 cents per share, but that stock has turned sharply lower. Now, don't miss an exclusive interview with PagerDuty CEO. That's tomorrow at 1 p.m. on The Exchange. All right. We'll be tuning into that. Buy now, pay later firm Klarna, meantime, recorded one month of profit in its second quarter, but still missed uh, out on profit for the first half of the year. Despite macro concerns, the company posted its third consecutive quarter of gross profit in the U.S. Joining us now is Klarna CEO Sebastian Simietkowski. Sebastian, great to have you on the show, back on the show. Um, you didn't mince words in this release. You, you said today's results clearly rebut the misconceptions about Klarna's business model. You also said some claimed Klarna would face difficulties in the tough macroeconomic climate with high interest rates. Um, but basically that you've had a strong and resilient bu- business model. I guess walk me through what you see as the misconceptions and uh, let's, put that, let's put it to rest. <laughs> well, I hope, you know, uh, at least nothing else like last May, Last year, we posted, you know, negative EBITDA of $120 million. And this, this um, 12 months later, we did a slight positive, right? And the main, main reason for that is that we have a very different type of credit product than the one that the credit card companies and banks offer. So, you know, when consumers use our credit product, uh, they have zero interest or very low interest. Uh, they pay in installments. We underwrite on a real-time level every transaction. We don't use old income data from two years ago. And uh, we don't encourage people to, uh, you know, uh, accumulate too much debt, which is why the average outstanding balance is just $100 compared to $5,600 on a credit card, right? So what that means is when macroeconomical changes come, as they have, um, we can, when we change our underwriting model, it takes us two months so that 50% of the balance sheet is underwritten according to the new standards, which takes, banks may take over three years. And so it gives us a very agile and robust business model that allows us to adjust to new conditions. And I'm you know, really happy to see the results. Like you offer healthier credit, you get healthier outcomes. Mm. Um, and that's what we're seeing. Okay. Um, so, so just looking at the U.S. specifically right now, at a time where American consumers have now taken on a record amount of credit card debt, it's now topped more than a trillion dollars. Um, and there's this controversy or at least debate swirling within the analyst community about what student loan repayments starting back up is going to do uh, to the space and to consumer spending behaviors. 
your take on all of that and whether specifically student loan repayment is going to be a headwind or not? Well, I think, again, like, um, it's obviously, it depends so much on the different consumer groups. I think that was very interesting that McKinsey did a, a research where they identified in the U.S. market, there's about 20% what they call self-aware avoiders. And, and these are basically people who have uh, grown very, very tired of the dirty tricks of the banks, of trying to lure you into revolving, and to lure you to, you know, show you credit limits of, to make you overspend or put all of your transactions on debit, uh, sorry, on credit rather than, you know, offering you debit or credit at every transaction to make a healthy decision. So I think that like what you're seeing is that those self-aware avoiders are, 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 you know, are much more mindful in how they spend their money. And in general, I was speaking the other day to the uh, Ryan, this, the new CEO of Visa, and so far, because employment levels have had, held quite well, you know, loss levels are still not severely impacted or haven't seen significant shift in credit card portfolios in the US either. So I, as long as employment stays healthy, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not expecting direct change. And also some of this is obviously, some of these numbers look a little bit odd because we have to remember during COVID, people really cut their spending and used a lot of the, the checks that were flying from government in the US to, to pay down debt. And so now you're kind of seeing slightly a rebound of, of that, right? So I think some of it is just, uh, we're comparing apples and bananas slightly, but, okay. but, but in general, well, you have to be mindful and, and have a close, uh, and continue to follow it closely. Sebastian, your, your rivals over there at a firm already public uh, their stock's up 50% for the week, which, which isn't a bad comp for you. And I think they actually saw um, delinquencies, you know, bad, bad paybacks going down, um, something, quite a few basis points. What are you seeing in your customer base? Is, it, is the algorithm working? Is it doing what you expected? Are people uh, paying as expected? Yeah, I think, you know, the competitor you mentioned, there's similarities and, and some large differences. I think uh -huh. more subprime, more kind of high ticket items, clonized, more low low frequency everyday purchase spending and more kind of these self-aware avoiders. So just kind of slightly different populations. But with that said, I do think that, the, you know, on the similarity side, it's definitely this what I talked about, which is the agility of the models and the ability to, to underwrite on a real-time basis. We have to remember that the credit card today works so that you apply for it, you you know, you have a credit check at the time of application, and then actually that's kind of it. Most of the data then is is quite ancient, and it's just not as good of a model comparing to underwriting in real time. And that makes a huge difference because, again, it gives you the agility when macroeconomical fundamentals change like they have. Interesting. Um, interesting point. Some people thought that by now pay later was riskier, might turn out to be quite different. Sebastian C. Mikowski, uh, CEO of Klarna, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, before we go, queue up the QR code. Here's your chance. You can sign up for the On the Other Hand newsletter. See, there it is. You can also just type in cnbc.com slash OTOH and sign up for the latest installment of the newsletter. This week's debate just happened this morning. Mike Santoli was there with me. Has Salesforce transformed into a growth and profit machine? Once again, the QR code that was on the screen is it back. There it is. You can go to cnbc.com slash O-T-O-H as well. Morgan, quite a week packed with earnings. We're going to have the jobs number tomorrow. It's huge. For now, that's going to do it for overtime. Fast Money begins right now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 